Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, weaponizing winter. Uh, President Putin is using winter as a weapon. NATO promises to stand by Ukraine as Russia bombs critical infrastructure. Millions are without electricity, freezing in the cold and the dark. So is the alliance doing enough? We will speak to a Ukrainian-Canadian who's fighting on the front lines. Also, we don't want to continue to wonder what if. We want to be able to see communities kept safe. A promise to invest in Indigenous-led community safety projects. A day after visiting the James Smith Cree Nation, we'll speak to the Indigenous Services Minister about her government's commitments. And... Ottawa is not our ruler. Ottawa is our partner. The Alberta throne speech. Premier Danielle Smith outlines her priorities focused on affordability and Alberta's place in Confederation. This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The NATO foreign ministers are gathered in Bucharest tonight, meeting close to the shores of the Black Sea to discuss ongoing support for Ukraine. Earlier, we did hear from the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg condemning, among other things, Russia's concerted effort to knock out power supplies and robbing Ukrainians of heat. Take a listen. We are all shocked by the uh, indiscriminate attacks on uh, Ukrainian uh, cities, on uh, Ukrainian uh, infrastructure. We see that President Putin is trying to deprive uh, Ukrainians uh, of uh, water, electricity, heating, light. Uh, President Putin is using winter as a weapon. He is weaponizing winter, and uh, that is uh, just making it even more important to uh, support Ukraine. Well, to discuss the situation on the ground and to get some reaction to Jens Stoltenberg, we're now reaching out to Daniel Bielak. Mr. Bielak is a Canadian lawyer who now lives in Ukraine, has been fighting as part of that country's territorial defense forces. Daniel, good to see you again. Nice to be on your show. Listen, I want to begin with your reaction uh, to what we just heard from Jens Stoltenberg, this acknowledgement that Russia is trying to punish Ukrainian citizens by robbing them of heat, water and electricity in winter. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Well, I have to tell you, Michael, I'm, uh, you know, I'm getting tired of how shocked and, and appalled and standing with Ukraine and will support Ukraine to the end. Uh, uh, NATO politicians and secretary generals and the secretaries general and others are, are getting. I mean, you know, when, I, when I'm in my uh, uh, bomb shelter with my children, when the rockets are flying overhead uh, and taking out our, our critical infrastructure, I haven't had uh, heat and electricity uh, in my home for, for the last four days. I'm clearly not at home right now. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I don't understand. I, I do not understand why uh, NATO can warn uh, uh, Putin about catastrophic consequences when he alludes to the use of nuclear weapons uh, and he backs down right away. Uh, and why they can't do that when he's trying to create the largest humanitarian crisis in Europe uh, since the Second World War. 10 million people without heat and water. Why can't NATO 
tell him you will be faced with catastrophic consequences unless, unless you stop. We don't need reaction to the bombings. We need action ahead of the bombings. Very simple, something like, you know, your cruise missiles are being fired from the Black Sea. We're going to take those ships down. Uh, we are going to uh, take out and eliminate uh, military bases in the occupied territories of Ukraine. We are going to put even more brutal sanctions to take down your economy so that you can't wage war. I mean, this is the only language he understands. Being, being shocked and concerned and, and everything else uh, is, 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 is great. But, you know, when NATO responds with generators uh, to uh, these kinds of attacks, it's not going to stop him. I'm not being ungrateful. I'm very grateful for, for, for generators. We need them for our hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. But, the, but this is not going to save Ukraine's critical infrastructure and our electricity grids and our power heating systems, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. We've had 16,000 rockets fired at us since the start of this war. 97% of them have been fired at civilians. Can you're dealing with a terrorist. Can, you're dealing with a with, with, with terrorist state. Can I ask you to, to paint a picture for us, Daniel? You talk about your own family without heat and electricity for four days. But in general, uh, right across the country, what are you hearing from the people you know or people who've reached out to you? What has this loss of infrastructure, this damaged infrastructure, meant for their daily lives? Well, it, it clearly affects. I mean, a lot of the people are without heat, water, electricity. Uh, it means that it makes it harder to get food. It means it's harder to find water. Uh, the supermarkets clearly have to clear out their uh, uh, their frozen goods and their refrigerated goods sections. They're not going to restock them. Um, you know, I live in a I live in a village in a in a, a municipality outside of Kiev, so it's easier for me. And uh, it's it's much harder for people who live in cities. If you're living in an apartment building on the tenth, eleventh, twelfth, twentieth floor, that's quite a quite a hike for you every day up and down those stairs. Uh, and you can only carry so much when you when you when you go, come into your apartment, and you know it, it's it's enormous suffering. I mean, you have have doctors performing uh, surgeries with uh, with uh, you know battery lamps on their on their heads. Uh, that's the only that's the only electricity that they have in the operating room. Uh, you know, how do you get how do you call for an ambulance if 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 you have a, an emergency at home? Mm -hmm. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Um, it doesn't mean that people are panicking. Uh, it doesn't mean that, I mean, it does mean that people are afraid. It does mean that people are concerned, but it means that people are not going to give up. I mean, Ukrainians are resilient, they're resistant, and they're resolute. And the people are determined that uh, Vladimir Putin is not going to drive them you out, know, of their, uh, out of their country. Mm -hmm. You know, you, I, I heard you list off the actions that you'd like to see, but you, obviously NATO is trying to walk still this fine line uh, between supporting Ukraine, holding back Russia, but also not be seen as a direct combatant in this in this war. What do you say to that kind of language, that kind of rationale? Look, you can, it's, he has not weaponized, Putin has not just weaponized winter, he has weaponized NATO's fear of escalation. You can be, you can be risk informed, which is a rational response, proportionate response, or you can be risk adverse, which is a recipe for inaction. And, you know, they, they moved very quickly when he talk, started talking about nuclear weapons. NATO is already a combatant because Putin has made NATO a combatant. Instead of giving his soldiers uh, guns and proper equipment, he is supplying them with pamphlets entitled Conclusions in the War with NATO in Ukraine. 
this is how he's selling the war in Russia right now. This is a war that he is waging with NATO. So, I mean, you can you can make all the excuses you want and you can be afraid of escalation. But, you know, they didn't. The West and NATO was not afraid of escalation when he started to allude to nuclear weapons. This is the only language this guy understands. And if you are not going to be tough, he sees any form of compromise, any form of inaction as a uh, form of weakness. And he will just double down. So at the very least, Michael, we need the West to double down on the military equipment we need to finish this war. And, you know, if we're only going to get generators and, and, and this kind of support uh, for, for the bombings that are still coming, we're all waiting for the next wave to come. And he's going to have wave after wave. I don't know what's going to be left of the country. But we will continue to fight. Mm -hmm. And what we need is long-range weapon systems. We, have, we, we are being bombed from 1,000 miles away. Apologies, Daniel, but in quickly. The Caspian seas, in the Caspian Sea and in the Black Sea. And we're limited to shells of 60 miles. So give us what we need. Let us get this job done. Let us finish this war and, and we can move on. Daniel, I'm sorry we're out of time, but really always appreciate you coming on. Thank you for that, Daniel Belak. Thanks very much. It's been over two and a half months since the deadly stabbings in the James Smith Cree Nation. 11 people were killed, 18 others injured. And yesterday, for the first time since that horrific day, the Prime Minister met victims' families. Accompanied by the Indigenous Services Minister, Justin Trudeau also made financial commitments for Indigenous-led programs and a promise to make Indigenous-led policing an essential service. Close work with uh, provincial authorities uh, and their responsibilities over policing is going to be essential as we move forward. Uh, we know we need to do this uh, more quickly. Uh, we know and hearing from uh, families who suffered through the tragedy of uh, September 4th, um, there are so many what ifs. What if there had been police quicker on the scene? What if uh, we had been able to uh, act on this uh, faster? What if there had been uh, proper prevention and follow-up before? Um, we don't want to continue to wonder what if. We want to be able to see communities kept safe in an active way, and that means creating strong, robust First Nations policing uh, to be of the community, from the community, and in the community. Uh, there's work to do to get there, but there are things we can and are doing uh, in the short term uh, as we set that up. Joining us now is the Minister for Indigenous Services, Patty Haidu. Minister Haidu, thank you for being with us. Great to be here. Thanks. Nice to see you. Now, you spent yesterday in James Smith Cree Nation. You were there with the Prime Minister, as we saw. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, less from a policy perspective, but more in a personal reflection, if you will, what did it mean for you to be there and to meet the families who lost loved ones? Mm, thanks for the question. You know, I think the question for me is, what did it mean for the families? And um, I had been in the community uh, when the tragedy first occurred. I went actually to visit the community. They were still in a state of shock. To some degree, they still are in a state of shock. I mean, they lost so many family members and almost everyone in the community. In fact, the entire community is affected. But the community members that we met with, the family members, indeed the broader community, were all so thrilled to see the Prime Minister, thrilled to see the nation recognize the depth of their loss and the extreme pain that the community has been feeling since uh, that day, and indeed in the days before that led up to that tragic incident. 
Uh, family members had a chance to share with the Prime Minister their own personal journey towards healing, the struggles they're facing, and some of the frustrations they feel on a day-to-day -day basis as the community grapples with what this means from a structural, a social fabric perspective. But I would also say that there was just this incredible sense of welcome for the Prime Minister, for me. Um, certainly, we felt that at all points through the day, whether it was with the private meetings uh, with families and then later on with the grand entry and, and, the, and then the announcement itself, there was a real sense that people were so thrilled to have the Prime Minister of Canada in their community. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, while there, you, the Prime Minister, your government announced uh, funding for projects and programs, tens of million dollars uh, for the community and the surrounding region, a total of $62.5 million uh, spread across several years. You know, I'm wondering, for those who would push back on that figure, that dollar amount, why so much for such a small community? Well, the amount is divided into two uh, pots, really. There's $42 million for direct supports, mental health supports, recovery supports, and that longer-term transitional healing centre uh, that the community will use, you're right, not just for their community members, but for the region at large. And that work is uh, short-term, it's a mid-term, and then it's a, a longer-term planning that the community will do to get to the eventual bills and, and operation of a traditional... Uh, healing center that's designed by community, designed by First Nations, led by um, James Smith Cree themselves, uh, imbued with culture and um, uh, language and many other aspects uh, that are integral to healing. But the $20 million also announced at that event was about strengthening an, a program that provides for supports for communities to increase a sense of public safety and security. As you know, my colleague, Minister Mendicino, is working on co-developed policing legislation for First Nations, on First Nations, but there's still a gap in terms of some of the needs for public safety work that communities are facing. And across the country, we see innovation happening in this space on a regular basis. Uh, we see communities that have community patrols, that they have prevention programs, they have supports for young people that are at risk of getting involved with the law, people that are struggling with mental health or substance use. And so this $20 million additional dollars will go towards those programs in First Nations communities. Mm -hmm. Well, let me pick up on that point, Minister, because you mentioned your, your colleague, the Public Safety Minister, Marco Mendicino, and at this point he is promising legislation by next fall for Indigenous-led policing, uh, declaring it an essential service. What difference th does that kind of designation make? Listen, I think what we see across the country is a real uh, inequity in terms of what kinds of support for uh, policing exists uh, from First Nation to First Nation. Some First Nations do have arrangements with First Nations policing structures that allow for policing that happens in a culturally specific and appropriate way. Others rely on provinces and territories to fill in the gap. Many uh, communities, especially those that are remote, will talk about uh, a lack of uh, culturally appropriate or even responsive policing that can help uh, reduce um, the kinds of uh, systemic challenges that they're facing. At the end of the day, every community deserves the right to public safety. In fact, there's a lot of literature that uh, indicates that the health of a community rests on people feeling safe in that community. So this legislation that the Minister of Public Safety will co-develop with First Nations people is really about trying to fill in that gap and create the empowering legislation needed for First Nations people to take control back about how they create that sense of public safety in their communities. 
Now, in the meantime, of course, we as a government are not waiting for that and indeed uh, using the tools that we have, the support and the funding that we can provide to ensure that communities that have um, plans, programs, other kinds of things that create a better sense of public safety uh, for communities like James Smith Creek can be implemented quickly. And indeed in James Smith Cree, one of the uh, developments since the tragedy has been the establishment of a security team that is actually working in the community, helping to provide a sense of relief from some of the um, fears that community members have, and rightly so, after a tragedy of that proportion. Mm -hmm. Quickly running out of time, but you know, you spent yesterday at the James Smith Cree Nation. Uh, today, you're meeting with the uh, AFN chief, Roseanne Archibald. Can I ask uh, about that meeting, what the purpose of it is? Yes, this is an important meeting between the Prime Minister and the National Chief, as well as uh, Minister Miller and I, who will be there to support that conversation. Uh, as you know, this government has made tangible steps to work in partnership with Indigenous rights holders and their advocate groups. And the AFN, as you know, has a very important role to play in much of the work we were just talking about in helping to facilitate, for example, the co-development of legislation that will directly impact First Nations communities and lives. And so part of that work in our earlier days was uh, establishment of permanent mechanisms where the prime minister uh, and the members of his team could meet with, uh, in this case, the AFN on a regular basis to ensure that the work was moving forward appropriately in full collaboration. Some of those processes did get disrupted through COVID um, and some of those regular, regular meetings and work um, was delayed. And so this is an opportunity for the national chief and the prime minister to reestablish a regular approach, a standardized approach to being able to continue the important work that matters to the representatives at the AFN uh, and their constituent bodies and certainly the government of Canada. Minister Haidu, always appreciate the time. Thank you for today. Thank you very much. Nice to see you. And you. To Edmonton now, where the Lieutenant Governor of Alberta delivered the throne speech today, outlining the priorities of Premier Danielle Smith. Let us make no mistake. Albertans are proud Canadians, and we love our country. This legislation will never be used to undermine the rule of law or unity of our nation. Just the opposite. It will be used to uphold and restore the intent of the most foundational document of our law, the Canadian Constitution and Charter of Rights. Alberta's voices will be heard. Albertans' rights will be respected. And the Alberta government invites every one of its fellow provinces to work with the government in ensuring that same respect is demonstrated to every single province in our nation's capital on a go-forward basis. In doing so, the government will ensure Canada becomes stronger and more unified than ever before. 
As expected, the speech included Premier Smith's priority to address Alberta's place within Confederation, but not a bill to protect the unvaccinated, at least not yet. So for more, we are now reaching out to journalist Graham Thompson. Graham, good to see you again. Thanks, Michael. So let's begin with the bill for the unvaccinated. Again, not in the speech, uh, but this is a group of people that's been described by Danielle Smith as the, quote, most discriminated against. Has she softened on the issue? Well, not really, because you know she has said a few days ago that she would not uh, be pushing ahead. This, this promise she made that she would um, change the Alberta Human Rights Act to give the same protection for the willfully unvaccinated as the act gives to people who face real discrimination on things like race and, and um, sexual orientation. So she's there was a promise she made to her members and to she said the very first day as premier she said people who are willfully unvaccinated, those who could get vaccinated but chose not to, she said, faced the most discrimination of any group that she's seen in the last 50 years. Ridiculous statement, of course. She didn't actually apologize for it, tried to clarify it, but the thing is we thought she'd be changing the Human Rights Act. Um, She said a few days ago she is not doing that. This is because, look, most Albertans um, don't see the unvaccinated as a hugely um, discriminated against a group, they're worried about uh, issues like cost of living, health care, protecting the health care system. So this is Smith, in a way, saying to moderate Albertans, look, I'm not going to pursue this idea right now to change the act. But at the same time, she's really beholding, uh, beholden to these people who made her premier who think that they did face discrimination. So she is, what she's done, she started to call group who um, get money from the province saying, I understand you have a vaccine mandate, so I'm going to ask you to lift your vaccine mandate. And that's putting pressure on these groups. For example, the Arctic Winter Games. The province is giving $1.2 million to that group. She gave them a call a few days ago and said, you have a vaccine mandate, we give you $1.2 million. You might want to rethink that vaccine mandate. And they did. And she said that other uh, ministers will be making calls to groups, to, uh, organizations, businesses, to try and talk them out of vaccine mandates. Also, um, you've got this idea where she says to all Albertans, if someone's got a vaccine mandate of some kind, please call us. Mm-hmm. We'll put pressure on them. So, so, so she is pushing ahead with this idea to try and influence people using the power of her office and the power of the public purse. So no bill, again, in the in the throne speech, but what is there is her, her Hallmark Sovereignty Act. And, and I do wonder about political capital here, because you, when you look at the polls, it seems that Albertans aren't really for either of those policies in great majorities. And it makes me wonder about the political capital she actually has to get both across the finish line, and perhaps that's why she chooses the Sovereignty Act. Yeah, now this, of course, is a change to the act, uh, the name of the act, and she said it a few days ago, look, it's going to be the Alberta Sovereignty Within a United Canada Act, Within a United Canada. Again, this is her trying to tell moderate Albertans, don't worry, uh, the act will not be about separation. It's about keeping the country together, but about Alberta standing up for itself. As for political capital, the problem is most, this is actually working against her. There's been polls out the last month or so showing that uh, yeah, people, Albertans, a lot of them think that Ottawa should do more to listen to Alberta and um, and help us out, perhaps, financially. At the same time, they don't like the Sovereignty Act. It does really sound like separation, and most Albertans are not separatists, which is why Swift is trying to change or did change the name of the act to, uh, you know, within the United Canada Act. But again, this is a problem for her. 
She's trying to appeal to most Albertans, the majority of Albertans, not just that 42,000 people who think that Ottawa's out to destroy Alberta, and who think that the, um, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic restrictions and protections were overblown, that they infringed on people's rights. But she has to keep pandering to them because she's relied on them to stay in power. Because she saw what happened to Jason Kenney, brought down in part by the people who thought he didn't stand up to Ottawa, <clears throat> excuse me, who thought he brought in too many pandemic restrictions. So she's trying to walk this tightrope. Yeah, walk, now in the, the, yeah. yeah, I was going to walk, jump in there, walk this tightrope, as I say, between now and the provincial election, just six months away. So just how difficult of a task has she set up for herself uh, between now and May? It's really difficult. It, the, her, because she, A, you got the majority of Albertans don't like her. The public opinion polls show that. They're not supportive of that Sovereignty Act. And so she's going to walk this line, but it's going to be really, really difficult because, again, she also she can't help herself when she has a news conference to say, I'm not going to be bringing in uh, changes to the Human Rights Act. Then she actually let, lets the cat out the bag that she's been phoning groups. She phoned the Arctic um, Winter Games and more or less pressured them into changing their vaccine mandate using, I guess, you know, the, the power of her office plus mm -hmm. uh, government uh, funding. So that publicly. So this is not going to go over well, I imagine, with the general public because public polls have shown they don't like her style, her very angry style of uh, maybe overusing her powers now. Ironic. It's pretty ironic here that she's a libertarian, believes in uh, less government interference in people's lives. And here she is as a premier uh, making telephone calls to twist people's arms to do what she wants them to do. So that's not going to go over well with the public. Six months to the next election, a lot can happen. But the beginning has not gone well for Danielle Smith. And she's going to have a hard time, I imagine, selling some of these things to the general public. Graham, always good to speak with you about these matters. Thank you for the time tonight. You're very welcome. Well, with that, let's take one more listen to the throne speech, in particular, the part regarding Danielle Smith's Sovereignty Act. Ottawa is not our ruler. Ottawa is our partner, and it needs to begin acting like it. The Canadian Constitution is clear. The federal and provincial governments both have exclusive and sovereign areas of jurisdiction, and this government will no longer sit idly by as Ottawa infringes on our constitutional rights to develop our resources, develop our economy, and deliver our social programs in the manner that Albertans see fit. That is why the first piece of legislation this government under our new premier will introduce will be the Alberta Sovereignty Within a United Canada Act. This act is to be used as a constitutional shield to protect the personal and provincial rights of Albertans from any unconstitutional or harmful acts by the federal government taken against our province, our people, or its economy. 
whether it be Ottawa restricting the use of fertilizer by our farmers or attempting to prevent us from developing the very energy resources that power our provincial and national economies, whether it be persecuting owners of legal firearms, inappropriately invoking emergency powers, or intentionally interfering in the delivery of provincial health care, education, or child care, the government will not enforce any unconstitutional federal measure or policy within the boundaries of Alberta going forward. And that is it for our program tonight. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for joining us this evening. I'm Michael Serapio. We'll see you again tomorrow.